you were just saying that you spent the last two weeks out on the water doing deep sea stuff. So maybe I'll just leave it there. Clue me in on what you've been working on, what's exciting, and uh, what's new in the world of uh, undersea. Yeah, absolutely. So for the past two weeks, we had some Navy units come up to Quincy, Massachusetts. That's where I work. That's where my team is based out of. My team makes the Dive LD product, which is a large diameter unmanned undersea vehicle. Essentially, it's a submersible robot. And this was pretty cool for us because this was the first time that we were having Navy sailors come up to interact with our vehicle. And it was cool because we as a company really value their, like, Customers getting hands on our products, telling us what they like about it, telling us what it could be used for in their minds and helping us optimize that product. I'm pretty stoked. The team just like the team had a phenomenal engagement with these with these Navy guys. And we got a lot of feedback from the customer about what they loved about the product. And it was really just really fulfilling seeing this happen because I met this team in 2020, the Maritime, the Dive uh, Technologies team. And Dive Technologies came to Anderil and joined forces in 2021. And I was lucky enough to be brought over to their team. And it was just a a really cool culmination of uh, my dream come true. That's super interesting. And I I can't even imagine that long in the works and finally being able to join, hey, here's the product and here's actually what it's going to be used for. That's super exciting. Was there anything about the meeting or like what you spent the last couple of weeks doing that was a surprise or, oh, we weren't expecting them to say something like that or anything that came up that I guess took you off guard? Yeah. So I'm not going to get into specifics about who came, but what was a surprise and also just really cool to think about is that this team of people who came up were like, Two years ago, or even as far back as one year ago, I'm going to say, Brock, this would not be something that might excite uh, a lot of people in the Navy beyond just submariners, which is like my background. As far back, like as recently as just one year ago, people probably wouldn't have thought that this type of thing is possible to take just anybody in the Navy and give them such a large robot and have them put fingers on keyboard and put hands on the robot and actually use this robot. A lot of folks think that this is very difficult to do, extremely technical, requires a specific type of rating. And I'm not going to argue like some of those points. I think it robots like this could be more efficiently employed with a specific Navy rating. But as we're starting to see, it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm really excited to see the, I call it the democratization of unmanned systems across the Navy, where they're all very accessible. They're lower costs than was previously imaginable. And anybody in the Navy can put their hands on it, put fingers on keyboard, and actually get these things out to accomplish their mission. When you talk about a rating, what exactly does that mean? Can you describe the the context? I think I've got an idea, but I'd probably yeah. rather hear it from you. Just make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. So I think you have a lot of military listeners, I presume, but not everyone's military. So I to explain it for those guys, a Navy rating is the same thing as a military occupational specialty for some of the other services um, in the Navy. I, we've got ratings for people that go to schools to get advanced education on specific types of things. So like fire control system, sonar systems, aviation technicians like yourself. The Navy has started to 
see a need for people who are going to school to operate unmanned systems. Like the proliferation of unmanned systems and the availability of a lower decreasing cost of these systems has made it such that we need to start thinking deliberately about having people go to school to understand how unmanned systems work. There's a lot of commonalities across unmanned systems that you can start to teach people to specialize in these things. And then if they need to get more specialized on a specific type of system, maybe they go through an advanced course for that, such as an undersea robot or an aerial robot. So the Navy's starting to come up with this unmanned systems rating where these folks can go to school to learn about how, in general, unmanned systems work, how they support the warfighter, commonalities such as communications pathways. I imagine probably some maintenance aspects as well. And I'm excited to see that rating start to emerge and start to fill out all of our existing commands across the Navy that are now like having robots replace some of the functions that humans maybe shouldn't need to do anymore so that humans can focus on more important things. As a past and I guess current in the reserve aspect submariner, what excites you the most about the Navy adopting technology like this? You know, there we can maybe get into some of the use cases of the dive LD, but what to you from like the Navy perspective is, oh, this will be really cool and either maybe like a replacement or a supplement to something that we are already doing. Yeah, this is why this was this is why this is such a dream job for me. I get to play both so sides I, of the fence. Yeah, exactly. I was on a submarine, the USS Georgia. It was a guided missile submarine based out of Kings Bay, Georgia. We had a dry deck shelter. A dry deck shelter is essentially a bolt-on cylinder that can be put on the back of a submarine and flooded up with water and have the door open to release things like divers, combat swimmers, seal delivery vehicles, or undersea robots. And I was privileged enough to serve on the submarine, see how those operations work, and then also go for my next tour, go to an undersea SEAL team that was also doing these operations. I had to work a lot to manage the manning, the qualifications aspects at this command of like, all right, we have to, in order to get one robot out of the dry deck shelter, we need 20 to 24 people, like a a team of divers, probably around 12, but you need to like account for injuries and sickness and people who can't do it back to back. And we need to put them on a submarine. And then on top of that, the whole evolution to flood the shelter up, first cover the submarine, open the door, put people in harm's way to accomplish a mission. Like it's just, it's manning and, and cost prohibitive and having a capability that can decouple itself from needing to use a submarine, which is an extremely expensive national asset, and decouple itself from having to use that many people to accomplish this mission is pretty cool. And I really like to see the advances on the commercial side where we're now having more ability to get longer range, more proliferated unmanned systems to decouple itself from manned platforms such as submarines. I, that's got to be so cool, like you said, to play on both sides. You're in the Navy and able to talk to peers about, hey, you know, this, these types of things are coming and like how and maybe even probably in some aspect influence prerequisites, manning requirements and like documentation about how the adoption of those processes will go. What do you most excited about in terms of features 
like of the Dive LD specifically, and maybe just had a, a high level talk about what each of those is and like what that's bringing to the Navy in general. Yeah, we, so I'm going to tell a slight backstory here. When I was working in Anderl, I started in 2019 and was lucky enough to get on a team in 2020 that was starting to poke around uh, in the undersea space to see if there was anything there that would be interesting for us to join forces with, partner with, maybe acquire. So they invited me because I was like the token undersea person at the time. And so we talked to a few companies, but the dive technologies guys just really blew us away. Their, everything about their approach really matched exactly with the way that Andrew likes to think about things, which is let's make a robot that is modular, that can be a truck for our customers that our customers can decide whatever they want to put on this vehicle to accomplish their specific mission. The dive technologies team understood that you're not just going to make a robot that does one thing and be able to really make an impact there. You have customers who use robots for different missions and they wanted to design something that would make it easy for customers to do that kind of like modular snap on the sensors or do something different with and also at a price point that would enable a lot of customers to have access to this thing and buy them at a scale that would make a bigger impact. That's what excites me about this product. This product is, to get into specifics, was designed so that it doesn't have to be as costly. It doesn't have, it's a submarine, but it's water and trainable, which means the whole thing is not a pressure vessel. A lot of other unmanned undersea robots are an enclosed like big metal container. So to be able to make changes to that metal container is to get new stuff in there is hard to maintain. You have to retest the thing. It's like really hard to adjust things inside of there. Ours is just a skeleton. It's got like some, we call them fairings, but they're essentially like the skin of the vehicle. And you could put really anything you want in there. And we've minimized the amount of those metal enclosures to make it easier to work with. It sounds and the way that it's presented on Andrew's website and the way that people talk about it, it's it seems super high utility. It's like, how can we create something for a very specific area being undersea, but also be so valuable like that it would almost be stupid not to adopt it? Like, that's what it seems yeah. like when I'm watching the <laughs> videos. I'm like, oh, look at all these things that are great. And nobody else does this. So it's a no-brainer. Does that kind of, does that align with maybe Andrew's like kind of building philosophy of building something so good that they don't really have the choice to buy it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I think the cool thing about this specific product is this technology has existed for many years, for over a decade. I think really like, I want to say before I was born, we were having undersea robots and there's a really there's a really cool heritage there. There's a lot of people who have worked in this space and really made big changes. I personally was frustrated coming from the submarine force, going to the Navy undersea SEAL team and understanding like what exists right there, like right now at the time, this is 2019, what exists in terms of other types of robots, like aerial robots, ground robots, like just the advances in machine perception, artificial intelligence. I was frustrated that this hadn't seemed to be applied as well to the undersea domain. And I thought that there was going to be a good opportunity for a company like Andrew to start to invest that money because the government wasn't doing it. It was a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing. The military didn't trust this technology 
therefore wasn't going to invest a lot into it or just thought it was like not able to be used in the ways that it could be used. But if you're not going to invest and use it, then industry's not going to like make it better. So it really took companies like Andrel and a lot of other companies that exist today that are starting to invest their own research and development money into making a, a cool product. And I think, I don't want to say we've got the best undersea robot. I do feel very confident that we have the most modular and probably one of the most easiest to use undersea robots. And for that reason, we have a pretty broad set of customers and a pretty broad set of missions that you could use this thing for. And I think we will really work with all those customers to make this the best undersea robot that they could be using. One of the features that really jumped out at me when I was learning about this thing is that it has the ability to launch from the pier. Why is that so significant? That is significant because a lot of customers, the way we envision our product being used is you don't have, you may not have the luxury of a big supporting infrastructure to be able to launch this thing. And we're even actively working on having to remove that. Right now, it's a crane launch capability, so you can pick it up off the ground and just put it in the water. But we are actively working on creating a sled release. So essentially just put this on the back of a trailer that your Ford F-150 can take or name whatever military vehicle that you have, back it down a boat ramp or some sort of gradient on the beach that allows for this and then just release the vehicle. That's important because we need to be, the military needs to you know retain its agility, especially when you think about areas that we might be operating in the future. And you can't afford to have to need a crane wherever you go. You have to be able to be able to put this on the back of an airplane, get it to where you need to get it, and then quickly put it into the water without any existing supporting infrastructure. I also imagine from like a development standpoint too, like it is much quicker to go and test something when you can just like literally pick it up and drop it in the water rather than having to oh, we need a boat, we need to tow this out, we need to put it onto a boat and, and haul it out there that yeah. way, or a, a plane, as you said, that probably yeah. makes the development of that much, much quicker. That's super interesting. And as I've been preparing for this conversation and talking to you, I will, I think, adopt, not that I wasn't before, but adopt a phrase you use of being bullish on undersea things. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really exciting topic and something interesting that's I see that and I'm like I'm glad that the US is fostering that type of thing. I would hate to see that in the the hands of our enemies. Yeah, I'm super bullish there. I'm obviously biased, but I do think that we've got a big competitive edge in undersea. Like we do this better than anyone in the world, and I do think we need to keep our investment high not just in the unmanned, but which is like ripe for investment. But I do think we need to continue to invest in the people that are working in the undersea space, such, such as our submariners and all the people that support submariners. One of the things that you had told me that you wanted to get into is why or what makes submariners tick exactly. Yeah. So I was, I was lucky to be the uh, second submarine officer on my ship, the USS Georgia. The reason that I went into submarines was because I felt that it matched my personality and I felt that it would keep me fulfilled. And I want to get into that because it'll answer your question. So <clears throat> what makes submariners tick? I was an aerospace uh, major at the academy. 
like 95% of my aerospace major classmates were going to go pilots. Like most of our instructors were pilots. Uh, and when it came time for me to decide, it's like your junior year that everyone starts to think about what they want to service select. You can be a pilot, you can be service warfare, you can be a submariner, you can be a Marine, EOD, Navy SEAL, et cetera. Submariners do this thing where they early select people into the submarine force because they need to assess how many people volunteered and then fill any gaps with people who need to be voluntold to do it. So second class, my junior year was the year that essentially I had to make my decision. I called a lot of my mentors. I called people who had like upperclassmen that I had worked with in college, called them to see how their training was going. I called a couple of people who went submarines and I called a couple of people who went aviation. And I remember the aviators were like, man, this is awesome. This is like the best job in the world. I just finished the solo flight from like coast to coast. I get to see like the sun going down over the curvature of the earth. There's nothing better in the world than this job. And I called my submarine mentors and I was like, how's it going? And they were like, there's a lot of studying. All I see is the walls of the classroom all day long for 10, 12 hours a day because they were in studying nuclear power theory. And they're like, but I really like the people. And my instructors keep telling me how great it is to serve with submarine, like submariners and crewmen and just how fulfilling and gratifying that is. And so there wasn't really, for me, it just, it came down to having, knowing in my heart, that was what was going to motivate me. Uh, as fun as being an aviator sounded and could have been, maybe, uh, I knew that what drives me is being able to work with awesome teams and really like capable people. And that's why I chose being a submariner. It's just the type of people who go submarines are there to work hard. They have a high level of ownership. They really, truly believe in the mission and they really, truly support each other. And that's what makes submariners tick. When you have spent like large stretches on the sub, how is morale? That's something that I always wondered because we have a the upside part or the oh, above water <laughs> Navy. I'm like, whatever, where am I at in this? The above water Navy, especially aviation folks like myself, we have a certain perception of the nuclear power people that work down below decks. And there is a very different culture that is bred into those different and all demographics yeah. within the service in general. But was that tangible in a way that was exciting to you beyond you deciding what you were going to do? Did you see that manifested itself once you actually made it out there, made it through all of the rigorous schooling that's required for that, and then made it actually onto the sub? Yeah, the morale is, that's a tricky one. Morale is not great. But I think it's actually the low morale that makes us who we are. And I don't want to say this to dissuade anyone from being a submariner. I still take calls from young women who are in college trying to service select. And I tell them it's a hard job. It's really hard. And that's why I chose submarining. That's why anyone who's motivated by that type of work should choose submarining. It's not there are hard days, there are difficult days, and sometimes morale is low. But I actually think that's what makes it so meaningful because when you're serving with others and you're all just trying to get through it and do the mission, you really it really fortifies those bonds a lot. And so looking back, 
that experience. I remember like the low points, but with those low points, I got to know my submarine like sailors, like family, right? I knew the pa- who their parents were, what they did. I knew about their families. We had a lot of jokes. We helped each other out. Those are the things that I think are priceless memories. And that's, those are the, that's the reason that I chose to join the submarine force was to do those hard things and go through hard days with people who are also there in it with you. Those difficult times sure do breed a sense of camaraderie that is difficult to replicate outside of extremely austere environments. Like there is there's a reason that the people that you meet in the military tend to be very good friends for that period of time that they're in your life. As you went to the submarine force and got to witness that out on out to sea and so forth, and then maybe even now that you've got some experience on the commercial side, where do you see submarines and undersea fitting into the larger defense force, I guess, within the United States Navy as a whole? Obviously, I think for the last however long, a very long time, carriers and particularly aviation are the first and the foremost thing that it's what everybody sees. There's no pictures of the submarines making the, (laughs) the U.S. Navy Instagram page for obvious reasons. But that's probably going to change here. And I've been talking to a lot of like defense tech folks recently, in particular, this guy, Mark Holden, who's got some very big views about what like the coming conflicts of the world might look like. And a lot of people are saying that the this undersea and submarines are going to be extremely important to that. And yeah. perhaps the U.S. has underinvested in that way. And you don't need to comment about that specifically, but I guess where do you see submarines fitting in as that puzzle piece? Submarines are unique because they are survivable. So they can operate pretty independently for very long periods of time, thanks to nuclear power. We have been trained since really since the history of submarines to be able to operate as a single unit. We don't require like a submarine doesn't require a supporting other type of ship to be able to provide cover or to be able to do reconnaissance for the submarine. The submarine is uh, an independent unit where it's it, it operates on its own. We call it like the kind of hunter, it's the hunter killer unit. Submarines are busy right now helping to prepare us for any sort of future conflict and simply the capabilities that a submarine has and the United States' continued investment in new submarine classes is in itself a big deterrent. I see that to break it down for folks who are less familiar with the Navy's composition and innate capabilities that certain types of platforms have, imagine imagine that there's an area in the world where if you are spotted, you are like useless. You can't operate inside of an area that has like a lot of radars, it has satellites. If an enemy can target you, you're going to have a really hard time operating inside this area. Submarines obviously have an advantage there because they can't be seen most of the time. It takes really advanced sensors to find submarines. And so that's why submarines are one of the few assets right now that can get inside of this. We call it the contested area and can be, and because they can operate independently, they can on their own target certain 
things that are harmful to us. They can pick up sensors. They can listen to things. Submarines are incredibly hard to find. And they're, these days, they're, they can cover down on a lot of different missions. With that said, what is the biggest threat to submarines? Is it other subs or is it... Yeah, I'm not even sure. Yeah. So this is like a topwater Navy question for sure. It's probably very basic, but humor me a little bit on this. Yeah, the biggest threat to submarines right now is submarines having to reveal themselves. So submarines have to every now and then establish communications. So we come up to what we call periscope depths, which is where we can throw up our communication masts out of the water uh, to receive communications from satellites or from other types of radio frequency emitters. We're very vulnerable right then because we are like just having anything out of the water creates a, a, a radar signature on the surface of the water. As far as other platform types go, air platforms are the most dangerous to submariners because they have radars on air platforms that can detect that kind of blip in the surface of the water. But if you can imagine, like, there might be a world in the future where submarines don't need to put a mast out of the water to establish communications. There might be, in the future, some company could work on something that would have to just eliminate the need to do that, where a submarine could just operate all the time underwater and use other types of sensors to relay messages. The idea of that is super interesting. And yeah. blink twice if you <laughs> know of a company that is working on something like that. I hope there's somebody uh, working on this. That yeah. is the thought of that really would change the game in like a big way. And yeah, I guess if that's the main threat that you highlight, the threat level probably drops considerably if you don't have to surface for anything. Yeah. Is there a certain period of time or a frequency in which you do need to hit that every so often in order to, like you said, establish communications or, or meet any of those things? Or is the ability to continue to operate without that part of what makes them so powerful? So do you mean like in the future, if we had a capability that eliminated the need to throw a mast up out of the water, would you still need to every now and then? Yeah. Yeah, you might. So submarines are still, there's still humans operating inside of submarines. Thus things happen to humans. Stuff breaks, so the submarine might need to leave the area that it's operating in to pick up new parts for something that broke, or maybe somebody injured themselves and the submarine needs to leave the area right away to get that person off. And then, of course, like every three months, you need more food. But it's really like the, it's really the food aspect that, and the human aspect that makes that submarine like not totally like able to be operated indefinitely because if you like nuclear power you can these submarines can operate indefinitely if it didn't have those like human factors could operate indefinitely for really years for as long as that we have fuel inside the nuclear reactor which and i guess coming back to our original topic of discussion the dive ld makes something like that much more valuable when humans are the critical factor weighing that down one of the things that you told me as we were prepping for this, you told me that you asked Palmer Lucky in your new hire class. One, I think that it's interesting that he comes and talks to the new hires. And so I'd love to hear about that. But then also that you asked him about Andrew's future in undersea stuff. Can you recount that and walk me through how that played out? 
Yeah. So Palmer still does the onboarding for new hires. It's amazing. I think I think the world of that because it's it shows that he cares to every month or however often we do our onboarding. He makes time out of his day to come and talk to the class of people and convey to them just how important working at Andrel is to national security. I think that's cool for a couple of different reasons. And we can go down like those rabbit holes later. But at the time, my cohort was like, this was like October 2019. There might have been like 15 of us, maybe 10, 15, I don't know. And Palmer was giving us just, hey, this is who I am. I started Oculus. I like went to Facebook, sold Oculus to Facebook, got fired, started working in the VA in virtual reality because I, I had virtual reality, wanted to keep tinkering with that. And I became really um, just shocked at how like bad the military acquisition system was and how it impeded people from making a big impact with technology that already existed, like virtual reality. Um, and so he gave us a spiel and then he transitioned into what we're doing at Andrel and why that's important and why he started the company. And at the end of it, he said, okay, does anyone have any questions or comments for me? And I don't know what compelled me to you know, raise my hand because I usually don't. But I said, I'm a submariner and I really love to see us invest in the undersea space. And this goes back to my previous comment about like there being a lot of advanced technology in other domains and there just wasn't a lot of investment in the undersea. And Palmer was like, yeah, I, I would love to do something there. I didn't know that Palmer had his own submersible. I guess Palmer's an undersea enthusiast too. I don't know if it's a commonly known fact, but uh, I think he saw it the same way as I did, which was like an underinvested space that we as Andrew could make an impact in. That's super cool. I didn't know the thing about the submersible. Yeah. So that's super interesting. And that's cool to see that manifest itself. And then you come to work on that program as well. Yeah. Like it's really, yeah. maybe you willed it into existence. Maybe we have you to thank for it. Maybe that was the <laughs> final tipping point uh, for he was like, okay, we got to do something about this. People are asking about it now. It was cool. I don't know if it was like, it, it certainly feels like it was full circle. And it got to the point where I was doing a bunch of research on the side, just in my free time at Andrew. And one of my coworkers, I remember very clearly, he said, Ariana, let it go. We're never going to get into undersea. This was like 20, this was like early 2021. And here we are. You said that there are a couple rabbit holes that we could pursue there. I want to chase those down. Yeah. Let's talk about those. Yeah. I think part of the magic that makes Andrew what it is, we do a really good job conveying to everyone that works for us from, from the time that you onboard to a monthly basis when we do our all hands, we communicate our mission. We communicate what we're currently doing with customers around the world as we can, right? Some of, what, some of what the, the stuff that we do is classified, but we are really transparent about the things that Andrew is doing and the impact that we're having and like why we are working. Like, on the things that we are working on. We convey that mission constantly to people who work at Andrel. I think that's really important to do to keep people motivated and to build that camaraderie. It makes it so that when people wake up and they come to work and they're putting in long days, they know what they're like, they know why they're doing that. They can like see the fruits of their labor and they can have like a very fulfilled attitude towards their work. And that starts with Palmer giving his presentation to the onboarding class is, this is what I'm doing. This is what we are doing. This is why I started this company. This is why it's incredibly important. And it starts from like really from day one. I think like you and I were talking last time about maybe what the Navy could do differently or maybe the submarine force could do differently to work on retention. And I think 
a low cost way to do that is through that level of transparency and information sharing where the submarine force says, hey, I know you guys are young. I know you guys are putting in long hours. This is what our submarine is doing. This is why it's impactful. This is what submarines around the world, like submarines of our fleet are doing these very impactful things. It just, it just keeps people motivated and builds a lot of pride in what you're doing. I'm going to go off on a side tangent here and then I'm going to bring it back. I recently or somewhat recently started a new job and I went from a job working at a company of 50,000 to sub 100, which is a, nice. a really massive shift. Super exciting, very different culturally. One of the things that I didn't really get in the first couple of weeks, our CEO is in every meeting talking about the same things. And by like week three, I was just like, okay, I get it. <laughs> like, I, I understand. And I like, yeah. at first, I wasn't really frustrated, but I was like, okay, like the repetition, like I'm getting it, I'm getting it. And at first it made me feel like I was like, maybe I'm sending a signal that I'm not understanding what it is that we're trying to get at. Since that point though, I've realized that the reason that founders and CEOs need to do that is because as the company grows, that reverberates less and less. Like they, it gets like quieter and there, there are people further and further away from them. And so they have to keep talking about it. And that's why yeah. that is so important. And I, now I like, I'm excited about it and I get forward to hearing about it because as the company grows, whatever. But I listened to several interviews from CEOs where they've talked about the growth from a sub 100 or very small. And I know that you started at Andrel when they were much smaller than they are now. And they've talked about like, you have to do that because later on, it might be the first time that a new hire has heard that. Every all hands, even if you have one once a month, there's going to be 50 new hires, maybe 100 new hires at some of these big organizations that haven't heard you talk about something like that. And that was like a big realization and unlock for me about why founders slash CEOs are so relentless about the mission because they have to be. That's what keeps the company alive. And if they have and want the company to continue to reflect the things that they started it for, that's required. Yeah, it is. It is. I still talk to people who new hires or people who've been at the company for even maybe, let's say, a year, and they still remember their, like, when Palmer came to their onboarding class. Like, it's for everybody at this company, it is such a key memory, including myself. And I just, I know that founders could spend their time doing so much other, so many other things. They are incredibly busy, but it's, it's very amazing when a founder takes the time or when somebody in the C-suite takes the time to carve out of their month, their week etc. to convey just, like, hey, let's tell you guys what we're doing. Let's highlight our, some of our wins. Let's highlight some of our failures. Let's learn from these failures. And like now we're talking about saying this to 2,000, 2,500 people who may have had nothing to do with that project, but it's this information sharing and transparency that builds the pride camaraderie and keeps people motivated to put in the, the long hours. Will you maybe walk me down memory lane here for a minute and talk about some of the differences that you've seen as the company has grown so drastically over the last few years. I know that you like stepped yeah. away to 
be an activated reservist there for a short time. And so that maybe even compounded some of the differences. But I'd love to hear maybe earlier days to now, what is the same and maybe what's wildly different? Yeah, that's a good one. In our early days, like when I came to Anderil, this was 2019, the company was two years old. When I interviewed, we still just had two main groups. There was the engineers and then there was like everyone else. And like everyone else group did everything from, okay, you're writing proposal responses, you're running demos for VIPs, you might be managing an actual contract that has deliverables, you are doing strategy, you are trying to do sales. It was like, there was a, a lot of things that we all were doing. This is like my favorite time at Anderol. It was a high growth period, a lot of work, seven hours, like seven days a week, 14, 15, 16, whatever hours a day. It was nonstop. As we grew, some of those things started to turn into teams. So we, we had a proposal team. So maybe like less of us, we were, were working on proposals. We had a business, we divided business development from the execution team. And so I went more on the execution side of the house. It just became more like swim lanes. It was not, it still is not inflexible where you can't do different things in Android. But as the company's grown, like it's added a lot of efficiency to have those different teams where people with expertise are focusing on those things. And in recent years, <clears throat> I left and I did a year of activation and I came back. It was happy to find that the company is really starting to be more deliberate about how we're spending our research and development money. We're starting to be more deliberate about what kinds of things we choose to do for customers. So it's not just, hey, we're going we're gonna to go after this crazy thing because we think it needs to be solved. It's, there ha there's some homework that is done in terms of, is this a thing that needs to be solved? Yes. Is it a thing that someone else is solving? Yes or no? No? Okay. Let's keep going down the decision tree. Is it a thing that is in line with our like who Android is and the services we provide and what we're really good at. Yes, there's more of that like satisfying the decision tree before we decide to go do something. And I think you you mentioned Palmer's podcast that came out a couple of weeks ago and he outlines this decision tree. But just as a company, we're starting to become more mature and having more process for things. It, again, is not prohibitive, but is good to solve problems that are worth solving in more of an efficient manner. I like the way that you put that. And I, I, after our conversation, I couldn't remember exactly what those were. So I had to go back and look at it. But it was essentially like the three main things were, is somebody going to pay for it? And that question gets a little bit weird when you're serving the, the person writing the check is the taxpayer. You've got a certain level of military slash government kind of involvement on that front. There needs to be like a need for the product, like in the material way of this serves a specific problem. And then also who else is in the space and why can we do it better? And yeah. he, that conversation was with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I'm going to have to link that in the show notes because it, the way that he lays that out is a really great framework for thinking about how everybody ought to solve problems. And it's, yeah, that's very first principle-esque thinking. Yeah, totally. You said that the R&D dollars and maybe more like the efficiency things were more deliberate. Do you think that beforehand it was more just a shotgun approach? And then to your knowledge, what do you think was the 
activation moment that caused that, hey, no, we need to be more deliberate with this? Was it just pure growth that drove that as a, a word that we had used before was the professionalization of the company? But can you point to anything specifically that kind of drove that? Yeah, I think Anderol has one, like amazing founders. And those founders are amazing because a lot of them have come from young companies. Some of them have started and their own successful companies before. And so they understood that you can't just, there's a difference between the early years where you're just trying to see what's going to stick. And you have a strategy, you think very thoughtfully about it, but you're still like trying to service a lot of different customers to see which one uses your product the most, which one of their problems your product can solve in the biggest way. But they also understood that you can't just do that forever and expect the company to grow into a big defense prime. You have to be like very intentional about where you're spending your money. Otherwise, you're just going to burn through all of it. And it was really them that drove this professionalization. It was two things. It was some of our customers, which I can talk about on a project that I worked on, but it was also driven from within where there was a push to say, okay, cool. Like, we're not just going to hire as many people as you guys think you need. You have to prove that the people you're hiring, that you're being like smart in the way you're structuring your teams, but you have to come and pitch your strategy to the folks with the checkbook internally to say, no, this is what I want to go after. Here's all the homework that I did. Here's the way we're developing our product. This is my product roadmap for all of these customers. There was a big, there are gates that you have to pass through an Android to be able to hire, to be able to spend on a business line. And I think the way, the reason those gates exist is because the people running the company have had those experiences before at their own companies. And they brought in people with a lot of experience rather than just hiring people who have done this, who have like highly effective, but maybe don't have the experience growing companies like Andrew. Let's get into the example that you just were alluding to, uh, the program that you had worked on, I believe is before your activation, but you seeing that firsthand, I'd love to hear that and dig into it. Yeah. So I was, as I said, my first year at Andrew, super fulfilling, very high growth, a lot of fun with the projects that I was doing with our customers. My second year at Andrew was developing a product, was taking an existing product and making it maritime domain awareness focused, which was a blast as well. But then I was asked to lead this big strategic project for the Marine Corps to deliver counter drone solutions at Marine Corps bases. And this was one of our first projects that actually involved a program office. So an acquisition program office with contracting officers who are very experienced in managing capabilities, managing acquisition programs, working with vendors. In short, like they were just a very, they had high expectations and we didn't have a lot of experience working with folks who were demanding in that way. So this was pretty, this was a pretty challenging project for me, especially as somebody who like at a company that we didn't have a lot of customers who were running their programs with the sorts of requirements that this program had. As an example, they gave us a requirements list when we got on contract and they said, cool, here's 200 requirements that you have to make your product like match. And we had just like never gotten a 200 plus requirements list to make our product do. And they said, also, you owe us like seven reports monthly that you have to write, which was another thing that we just not, had never been exposed to at the time. So 
it was it was challenging. It was hard work. It was frustrating at that time at the company where I was looking around and it didn't seem like everyone else had the same type of customer as I did. It was like very administrative, very tedious. It took a long time to build trust with that customer because we were a young company and they didn't quite like the way that we were deliver like fulfilling those deliverables may have not been what they expected from like a, I don't know, like a Northrop or a Raytheon or a Boeing, right? But it was a really good experience for me. And it was a really good experience for the company to start to get those types of customers. How did going through that and having maybe steeper requirements or a more professional type of customer change how you do work or manage something in the future? Yeah, it was it was eye-opening for me and I think some other people on the business line because this customer needed us to start to show data on how we were improving our product, show data on the effectiveness of our products, provide them metrics that justified that we were deliver like delivering against all aspects of the contract. Previously, we had just been able to say, look, like the product works. It's solving your mission. Here's some examples of the way this product is helping your sailors or airmen, Marines. Here is an example of a capture or something that, you know, positive that happened that saved somebody's like XYZ, right? In this case, we couldn't just give them like storyboards that had like wins that the product accomplished. We couldn't just point them to a Marine that said, don't you love our product? It had to have like actually like data that justified, no, your product works 90% of the 100% of the time that it's turned on. Your product can actually detect 90% of drones when drones are flown against. Your product can increase the bandwidth that a person has by X amount of percent. There had to be solid metrics and we simply just hadn't done a lot of metrics and technical exchange meetings and like reports of that sort. And I think it was the company now has many more projects that are like that. And I am like happy that I was part of kind of one of that, those initial projects that kind of laid the foundation for the customer having those types of expectations and us being able to deliver against that. You may be in slightly different role now, but when you think about communicating with a customer in maybe a similar capacity, do you now look for those types of requirements and say, hey, I need a requirements list and say, hey, thou, here's how I'm going to like, e even if they aren't asking for it, are you going to them and saying, hey, give me this list and let me show you now how we do this? Did your process yeah. change now where you're driving the conversation in terms of like how the product specifically meets the objectives? that they yeah. maybe even don't know that they need to have written out. You have to, like you have to. And that's what we've learned as a company is even if your product seems very cool and even if you have a bunch of sailors and airmen, Marines, soldiers that love the product, that doesn't carry the water. Like when you're talking about spending very big dollars on a product, you have to have data that shows sustained superior performance. You have to have data that says, this is what military asked for and we were able to do all of that in some cases we have customers who are just like no i just like the product and i just want to use it and, and buy it and we try to work with those customers to say like we need explicit requirements from you 
we think your requirements should be this if you don't have any. This is what our product can do. This is what it can't do. Tell us what you would like to see that it doesn't do. And we will work to like fulfill those other requirements on top of that. Uh, but you have to have you have to have something that is something that your champions can point to, something that the people that are using your product can point to say it does what we asked it to do to defend their use of your product when it comes to government acquisitions. You mentioned the word champions, and that's a word that I've heard from other much smaller defense technology companies where somebody will get out of the service and go shimmy together some sort of product product say that they have a company and it may even solve those problems but their affiliation and connection with the people who not long ago were their peers become their champions they're called and use that to advocate for the product do you still think that's an important piece of customer acquisition adoption and integration of new new business lines for Andril or, or other defense tech companies. Yeah, we think that's a huge piece. Like we at Andril look for those people who are at the ground level, who are actually solving or trying to solve that tactical problem or operational problem, depending on what your product is supposed to do. We find that those people are because they're closest to the problem. They're the ones who can provide you the best feedback to shape your product. And because they're the ones using it, they're the ones who are pushing the envelope of your product and having us like essentially support the additional engineering that needs that it needs to get to that like last mile. On top of that, they're the people who are informing this require this requirements list the best because they truly understand what it needs to do, what is enhancing to the product, what it doesn't need to do, et cetera. We find that if you're working with people in government labs or program offices, the acquisition experts, they're not the ones who are out on the front lines or in the trenches who are having to solve these problems. And I think creating the linkage between the warfighter and the program office is what, like, how most effective products are built because that warfighter can say, hey, this thing is, it's needs to do all this stuff. And then the program office can take that and say, okay, cool. I have your requirements now. I am going to manage this program in a way that gets more of these out to the warfighters as an official program that can be sustained, maintained, et cetera. It's such a interesting line to walk, especially with defense, because as we just jumped back on both sides of the fence here, we anecdotal data is extremely important because I don't know how many times being in the Navy or probably any branch, I'm sure everybody experiences it to some degree, how many products or things that you have laying around in your shop that supposedly meet a requirement on paper, but don't actually solve a problem for XX reason. Like it's either yeah. hard to use or there's something that's better, that's a lot cheaper or easier to manage. And then you know, that's so that's the anecdotal data where, hey, like I, these are the problems that I have and here's how the product can fill my needs. But it also like the data aspect is what you need 
likely from the higher-ups, the people who are writing the checks, is they're not the ones interacting with the product. And so they need to see how on paper it meets these requirements. And I think in a lot of traditional defense primes, like their focus is extremely on one side. And I think it's probably pretty obvious which is which. Yeah. Yeah, I think I wish there was better connected tissue between the warfighter and the acquisition program offices. I think we do a good job at a com- as a company making products that actually matter and that solve problems because we get them in the hands of the warfighters. If I were to make, if I were to be on a product that I gave to a warfighter and he was like, look, this is just not useful. Like something else does this better. It's hard to use, et cetera. I don't think Anderil would try, would, Anderil's definitely not the company that would try to push that product down their throats. I think that's part of our secret sauce is that we actually do get our products as, as much as we can. We try to get it out in the hands of the warfighters. We try to do combat validations. We try to put our products in the actual scenarios that they're intended to be used so that we can seek feedback from the warfighter, make the changes that need to be made. And like when we're working with the program office, we believe very intensely that it is the right product for the mission. Like when we started our conversation at the beginning, like I had students who were coming to put their hands on the product, put their fingers on the keyboard and actually use it. And part of that, part of those three days on the water this week was to gather their feedback and say, look, is this, does this meet your mission? And what else can we do with our product to make it meet your mission better? Has an understanding from the commercial side informed how you or other people in the Navy or any branch might advocate for better technology and better products? Yeah. Let's see. Can you rephrase the question? From Andrew's perspective, you're coming to like the, uh, the last couple of weeks, you're having them put their hands on the product. You're having them test it. You have your requirements list. And you're making sure that it's meeting these things. Andrew had off, Navy had on for a minute. Yeah. You are working with equipment and tools and things that are not meeting what they they should be. You're you're doing maintenance and you're you're overseeing maintenance, doing all of these things where you're working with stuff that may not exactly solve the problem. Has Spending time at Anduril informed how you, while in the Navy, could better advocate for tools and resources that better serve the mission. 100%. My time at Anduril has shown me how powerful a person at, let's say, a tactical unit, in Navy terms, this would be called like an echelon four unit, like small command who is at the tip of the spear of that mission. My time at Anduril has shown me that those people are incredibly impactful. They actually have a lot more like leverage than they think they have. They can go out, find a product, bring it back, brief their chain of command and say, look, like this thing is going to make a difference to my unit. It is going to make a difference to our mission. Here's like a list of theater requirements. We talked about like these lists of requirements. There are Navy key operational problems. There are 
theater operational problems that need to be solved. And these unit commanders can point to these things and say, this product can do X, Y, Z. It can solve theater requirements 1.2 and 1.5 and whatever. Those guys can also go to their requirements holders and say, I would like to do, I would like to do a CRADA with this vendor, or I would like to take this thing on a combat deployment. What do I have? What do I need to do to make that happen? Essentially, it's being an entrepreneur, but inside of the military. And even when I was in the military, I didn't know that was an option. But I've come across, we, Andrew, have worked with many of these kind of entrepreneurial-minded active duty members who see the options. They go out and they find ways to do this. And they're incredibly powerful, like leading from within and having their service reap the benefits of new technology. Do you think that's possible in larger, what, what did you call them, non-echelon for units? I'm thinking of yeah. you on your submarine, one person of many people. I'm thinking of myself on a carrier. I am literally Joe Navy, one of like 5,000 people that are on this ship waiting in this long chow line. Nobody cares yeah. what I think. And that sort of mentality doesn't, it's not conducive to wanting to suggest change, but we need that like in a big way. Yeah, it's hard. It depends on what kind of command you're at. I think back to being on a submarine. I don't think they're, I'm racking my brain and I, I don't know that I could have introduced a new widget to a submarine. That's really hard. <laughs> so it's, it depends like on the type of unit you're in. Uh, the type of job that you have. Some services are much better at enabling that kind of entrepreneur entrepreneurship than others. It's hard to do this in the Navy, for example, but people have done it and it depends on, like maybe take yourself out of the tactical unit and then go up to some sort of, maybe you're on your shore duty, your diversity tour, B-billet, what different services call it, different things. But there have been people who have paved the way by starting something. I think it was <clears throat> like, a lot of some of our artificial intelligence efforts in the past five years, six years have been started by young junior officers that said, hey, we need to start looking at this. This technology, like machine learning already exists. Let's try to apply that to sonar feeds, right? Can we do that? Side projects that, the, that these people went out, looked at, brought back and said, I just need to, maybe I live on a submarine. Maybe that's my command. I'm going to have some phone calls with people at sub, Submarine Forces Command to say, hey, do you know this exists? Can we start something to do this? And like, boom, now it exists. I know some other people who in their free time are doing research on specific improving medical devices that, they, that we in the Navy have and who are essentially becoming a product manager of a new medical device and then pitching it to Navy Medicine and saying, we should start looking at something like this. It's hard to do, but if you know the right people, if you make the right phone calls, you can get something off the ground. I think that's encouraging, and I hope that people can look at it that way. Like I said, it's very easy to feel like your voice maybe isn't heard, but we need people to advocate for better products. We need to introduce new things and try new things and be willing to fail a lot. And yeah. so that, you know, that kind of can pave the way for improvement. One of the last things that I want to chat with you about 
are some of your guiding principles for product? I've talked to a lot of product managers. I go through these weird stints on the podcast where I'll talk to 20 authors and then like I'm in the defense tech and product manager type of like wave right now. So we're hopefully hitting the crest and maybe I'm not sure what's coming after this, but we're riding it for the time being. You had some interesting ideas about what your guiding principles are and the things that you have learned that have enabled you to be successful at Andrel. You called yourself somebody that became like a zero to one type person. Let's start with what you think is the most important thing when maybe standing up a new idea or project, and then we'll layer it in from there. Yeah, I would say what has worked for me at Andrel, and even before that in the Navy, has been structured communication and working very closely with the teams that I work with. So in a zero to one type of scenario, it's like, I have a new product, new project, new sprint, et cetera. Being able to communicate what you need to get done with that sprint or project and keeping like the motivation and momentum up with your team by constant communication and by like good organization across your team. When I talk to people about working at Andrel, the things that I are, am looking for is, can you, are you well-organized? Can you communicate? Do you have a high level of ownership and initiative? Are you a creative problem solver? And do you have like true grit? And then across those five things, you need to be a deck plate leader is what I call it. So somebody who is not afraid to like get down with the team, roll up your sleeves, show that you can do the work that you're asking your team to do and really be curious about the problems that they're up against, what they're solving, what they're working on, et cetera. I think with those, when I start a new project, those are the kind of like things I return to, which is I need to start with clear communication. I need to like outline for everyone the mission and how we're going to get to it. Like how are we going to organize ourselves around the mission? I'm also the person who is going to work really hard, who's going to lead by example, because I like maintain that kind of like gritty, I'm going to roll my sleeves up. I'm going to like work just as hard or harder probably than maybe needs to happen. Maybe I'm being like inefficient because I'm spending time on things that I might not need to spend time with simply because I'm getting to know the team and I'm like getting to show people that I'm in it with them. I'm in the trenches too. And I look for I also think about the problem that I'm trying to solve in a more creative fashion where it's not just, all right, this is the problem I need to solve. I need to write this report. It's more like, who am I writing this report for? What do we need to do beyond writing this report? Who are the people that I need to like build relationships with on the customer side? That type of thing. And I think for that reason, I've been successful at moving from different projects at Android where I've touched a lot of different products. I have at this point owned four different, completely different product contracts and been able to build really solid relationships with not just the customer, but I think people would probably say that they really enjoy working with me too, which is like my number one aim. A lot of the things that you just described are like absolutely paramount and probably much easier in very small teams. How do you think about communicating effectively? 
how do you think about getting down and like rolling your sleeves up, being a deck plate leader? All of the Navy people just like wince when they hear that word. How do how do all of those things scale with team size? Or how can you be deliberate and still enable those things when maybe you're a couple layers up from being able to like actually go and physically put your hands on the product? Or or do you think that there is a point when people should be removed from it? That's a really good question, Brock. I think I am looking to graduate into being able to do those same things at a little bit of a higher level where I am training or coaching somebody that is going to be able to do that for a team. Let's say my team got bigger and uh, we had multiple contracts, like multiple customers that we were delivering these dive LDs to. I might not be like down and in on the deck plate with a small delivery team working for like X customer because we have XYZ customers. But I think you still are able to keep people motivated and allow the people, the person who is actually being the deck plate leader, you can allow that person to still be down and in with their team, to still be building that trust with their team and their customer by still communicating kind of the overarching vision every now and then. Like things that we talked about, the all hands calls, like kind of the frequent or the recurring types of communication where I say, look, we are enabling the future of undersea unmanned systems. Here's how we're doing it with XYZ customers. Here's how our product is fulfilling all the vision that we had set out for this specific product. I hope that there, I as a leader can still maintain that type of connection with a large team as a team like starts to scale. And I hope that I can do that when we start to sell a lot of these products. I hope so too. I'm sure that you will knock it out of the park. The There is such a stark difference between like being a people manager and like being a more tangible, like I'm leading, but I'm also like we're peers at the same time too. And um, like individual contributor as opposed to manager, those roles are very unique, each with their own challenges. What is the question or the subject that we didn't talk about today that I should have brought up? Subjects we didn't talk about today. I think what I would like to highlight is my philosophy is what has tied together my approach through all the jobs that I've worked in the Navy, my approach that has been consistent throughout the different projects that I've had at Andrel. A message that I'd like to deliver for anyone who's listening to this is Something I think about a lot is Colonel John Boyd's statement at one point that are you gonna are you gonna be someone or are you gonna do something? And I think it's not always a tr- like you don't have to. It's not like mutually exclusive that you can be someone and do something. But I like to think that like between the two, if I had to choose one, I would always choose to do something. And that goes back to like. Sure, it was super alluring to think about myself as a pilot, like maybe in a jet, looking at the sunset as it was going down. But I didn't think that was going to like, for me, I didn't think that was going to make as big of an impact as I could on a submarine with a crew that I could have some sort of like connection with and hopefully be a good leader. For me, it was like that doing something was more important than 
maybe the image of being someone cool or doing something cool. And I've tried to, I've tried to use that as my North Star for the jobs that I choose, be it in the Navy and even on to Anduril. There are things like <clears throat> probably projects that I could have taken to advance my career. But I think all the projects that I chose to take were projects that were important to the company, had a really great team, and in my view, are making a big impact. Do you think that's what we ought to be optimizing for? Impact? I think it's certainly I think it's certainly a good metric to start with. People have different skills, and so people can make impact in different ways. There are things that I wouldn't be able to do as well as someone else, and like my talents and my experience make me particularly well-suited to lead a program in the undersea space, for instance. But I was really inspired by Palmer's statement on that podcast a couple weeks ago where he said, look, there were things that I could have done that were probably more fun than starting Anduril and working in the defense space where it's quite challenging to like work with some types of customers. But I thought I could make a big impact there. I viewed like a very big gap and I wanted to do this because I felt driven by the mission. That really resonated with me. I think that if people, if more people were to step outside of their ego a little bit or step outside of the way that they wish to be perceived about doing something cool or maybe even making a lot of money, uh, I think that we might have I think the world might look a little bit different. I think so too. It's extremely easy to just be making it. I'm not entirely sure what the right word is, but you're just putting out fires as they come, especially when it comes to your life. Things just pop up and you're like, oh, well, I guess I'll do that. And oh, I'll take care of this. And oh, I don't have time for that. And that lack of deliberate thought and action should be scary because I think that it's very easy to wake up after 70 or 80 years not having accomplished anything meaningful with your life. So I agree with that in a big way. 100%. I do think I, I wish that I could spend more time surfing, but if I wake up 80 years from now and I look at my life, would I want to have a job that allowed me to go surfing every day and just live out of my van? I don't, I just don't, I'm not convinced that's the memory that I want to have. And when I look back and reflect on, hey, should I have been a pilot or should I have been a submarine officer? Like the memories that I have in the submarine officer and the things that I know I did mean much more to me than the idea that I like could have had, could have had a fun career in aviation. I'm going to paraphrase this quote because I'm terrible at remembering exacts, but there's this quote from Kevin Kelly. He talks about the reward for doing good work is more work. And there is the biggest misperception, especially in military people. I don't know what about it like entitles us to get out and just think that the rest of life is made. And it just is, it isn't like that's the, this is the beginning of the rest of the hard work and ways that you can have a more, even more meaningful impact than service, believe it or not, I think anyway. Yeah, no, it's hard work. I was thinking about this podcast on my way home from the airport today, and I did want to tell people it, it seems that the grass is greener when you're in the military and 
life is hard and you don't have a lot of control over your future. Like even on a daily basis, sometimes you just don't know what you're going to be asked to do or what the plan of the day has in store for you. So people have this like mindset that, oh, if I get out, it's going to be great. I make more money. It's going to be easy. And it's not easy. It's just different. It's different. It's harder. First, it's hard to transition. I know you have people on your podcast that have talked about military transition. And if you, to do it right, it's a lot of work. And then on top of that, when you're in industry, it's not all, it's not all laid out for you. You don't just have like your milestones that said, if I pass my advancement exam and if I get these awards and if I lead a division, like I'm going to get promoted. It's blurry. It's weird. There's, you have to navigate things that we're not used to navigating in the military. And you have to be like, you've got to be like aware, more aware of some of the politics, strategy, et cetera. And people who put their head down and just work, like I have so much respect for those people because those are people like you and me, veterans who just are used to doing that. And I still think and I still hope that there is fulfilling careers for those types of people to be able to like put your head down, work, make a big impact and be able to reflect on your life like in a few years and say, look, I did some really awesome things and I made a big impact. I couldn't agree more. If there's one of a few things that I hit the drum on this podcast so much, it's about being somebody that does things and yeah. not being somebody that just talks about doing things. Ariana, um, I really appreciate your time and coming on and chatting with me today. What can myself or anybody listening do to be useful to you? I think for anyone who's listening to be useful is... um the one ask that I have for folks and like something that my dad told me when I was in the military was mission first, people always. And I want to ask that people who are starting their companies, people who are running their companies, people who are people managers, please invest more time in your people. Your people will drive the organization. Your people make the culture of that organization. They are valuable and they are an asset. And I want to see a future where that matters more in organizations. The one asked from the audience here is just to spend more time leading your people, spend more time in the trenches with them, roll up your sleeves, just do things. Don't talk about doing them. I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Good, Brock.